Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. didn't move into this new tower here in Midtown. I mean, I feel like we should be in an apartment that occupies at least half a floor with three bedrooms. Well, first of all, I'm just breaking into the Broadway scene in the Union. And second of all, we aren't millionaires. Mm. Unless you just won the lottery and I'm not aware of. Okay, fair point. But could you imagine living way up there on, like, the 55th floor? Beautiful furniture, carpeted floors, huge windows, fantastic parties. <sighs> Must be some life way up there. Hey, we do all right for ourselves uptown. We have a backyard. How many people can say that? That's a really good point. We may not be able to have lavish huge parties in our apartment, but at least we can host fabulous garden soirees. Now that's the spirit. Let's hurry and catch the train so we can hurry back to our humble abode. Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the riveting show, The Assembled Parties. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Have you settled? Have you settled in? You settled in and, and unpacked your bags? You can stay if you want, and, and we hope you do, because on today's show, we are delving into the gripping drama that is The Assembled Parties. This was not playwright Richard Greenberg's first play on Broadway, and it certainly would not be his last. But this show certainly stirred up emotions for audiences and left a lasting impact on Broadway that season. But first, let us begin with our groundwork. The Assembled Parties relates the story of a Jewish family living on the Upper West Side of New York City over a 20-year period from 1980 to 2000. The playwright was Richard Greenberg, director Lynn Meadow, scenic design by Santa Laquasto, costume design by Jane Greenwood, lighting design by Peter Kazaworski, Music and sound design by Obadiah Eves, hair and wig design by Tom Watson, and the makeup design was by Angelina Avalon. The show would arrive at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater for a limited engagement on April 17, 2013, and it would be extending a total of three times, making a final closing date of July 28, 2013. Upon closing, it had played 119 performances. 
The show received three Tony nominations that year and went home that evening with one for Best Featured Actress in a Play, going to Judith Light, who played Faye. So let's head to the Upper West Side for a shindig. Bazkov family gets together to celebrate Christmas. They are Jewish, but do not re- observe their religion. They gather at the large and luxurious Upper West Side apartment of Julie, a former teen movie star and her wealthy husband, Ben. Also present are their sons, Scotty, recently graduated from college, and young Timmy, sick with the flu. Ben's sister, Faye, her husband, Mort, and their daughter, Shelley, arrive. Jeff, a school friend of Scotty, is a visitor. 20 years later, in 2000, the family meets again at Christmas at Julie's apartment. However, now Ben, Mort, and Scotty are dead, and Shelley is estranged. Those present are Julie, who has a fatal illness, Faye, now no longer taking medications, and Jeff, returned from a successful law job in Chicago. Tim, no longer Timmy, comes and goes. He has been forced to leave college and works at a restaurant. The The end. end. So let's discuss the show. Parts we liked, parts we didn't, parts that were unknown. Um, again, this is another show similar to our last episode where the synopsis is a little light, but I'll say two things about it. One, that I think that the synopsis really just covers it. You're missing dialogue from all that. There mm-hmm. is one issue regarding money that's left out that's a conflict between uh, Faye's husband and Ben, who's Julie's husband. Um, <clears throat> but that would give away the entire story. Correct. So I would encourage all of you to go out and buy this play and read this play because it's such a good written play, which leads me to discussion. I really, really love this play, particularly the story. Oh my gosh, I found it so, so gripping. Um, <clears throat> I loved... All the design elements, I thought everything just worked together so well. It really helped to amplify the overall message and tone of the piece. There was like eight different issues and ideas addressed, and it was fabulous. Um, So, you know, we already warned you at the beginning there will be spoilers, so here they come. You know, you've got this, um, like, debt, or or no, it's over um, jewelry between the two husbands. You've got this stolen jewelry thing. You've got Shelly, who's this recluse daughter who they're trying to, like, you know, she should get married. She should meet someone and get married. Maybe she could, like, get with Scott. We've learned later learned that Scotty is returning from Africa. He actually has AIDS. So he gets the flu from Tim, from Timmy, and then he dies. Mm-hmm. That's why he's not there in 2000, you know. So all that's happening. There's all this tension among friends. It's just... So good, so well written. I can't get over how well written it is. I love Richard Greenberg's writing. It's so good. 
Um, and I loved the great balance of comedy and drama that existed. So even though we had these heavy issues, these very dramatic moments, there was still comedy at the heart of it that really balanced it out, that let us have those moments to breathe and just laugh a little so that we could you know, relax and gear up for the next mm-hmm. whatever was coming. Um, so this is one of those plays that remains in the back of my mind forever. It just, it really has left just an ama- amazing and, 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 and lasting impact on me, you know? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't remember much about the show. Um, I remember Judith Light. I remember us going, the, this is something that was really, like, the way that the family dynamic was, was very similar to the way that your family talks. And I remember the set. Right. I remember the gorgeous, <clears throat> gorgeous set that I thought was one dimensional, as in like just one room, but then it moved beautifully to reveal another part of the apartment. Right. And... Oh, it just was so well put together. But then again, that's what you get when you get Santo Laquasto. So I thought this well, it was enormous. It was huge. And what I loved is that it looked bigger than it was. And, yes. I, and that's the way it was designed and constructed. It allowed us to believe that the house just went on and on past what we could see. So when the actors went out, I remember like when Julie went out down the hall when it was the 80s, mm-hmm. you thought she was going way down the hall. When really she went around the corner, stepped off the stage. But... Yeah. You know, and then when we were in the 2000s, that space between the dining room and the kitchen, it looked so vast. It felt so vast. You know, And now living in New York, I mean, God, to think how big that apartment is portrayed as makes you go, how much money did they have? Yeah. That neighborhood, that size of an apartment, I mean, good heavens. And then you realize the fact that they were having all these issues over money Makes you just want yeah. that much more. Um, I loved the 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 time placement of the furnishings. Like it was really clear what time we were in when they were in the eighties. You know, you had all like this eighties style couches and table and yes. What is funny is because most people I know, you know, once you buy a good sturdy kitchen table. You keep that good, sturdy kitchen table until it breaks. Where Well, and, and I think, if memory serves me right, the table did stay. But you saw other set dressing pieces alter when we went to the 2000s. I remember especially like the wallpaper changed. I do remember yes. the wallpaper changing. Um, so, you know, there's cle- you saw that clear change from one to the other, the way the apartment looked. Um, and it obviously was a lot emptier mm-hmm. in Act 2 when we were in the 2000s. That was the other big deal. So um, I adored the kitchen and the table, the two incredibly key places for the story. I think that's important to know that a lot happens in the kitchen and in the dining room. Uh, remember the green prepping table The that, that they did so much cooking at and talking at? Mm-hmm. Um, that countertop table. That's um, right. That was just so... It, it looked like... Ben, the husband of Julie, had just painted it himself. There were all these little spice jars on the side. Mm-hmm. And I feel it. Like, I think they were really cooking stuff, too, while they were there. Which, I mean, now I'm learning that it's not such an odd thing in Broadway. Yeah. You know, that's it, it is what it is. So I want to move on to costume now because they were so good. So good in the show. Uh, again, the, the time and placement, the, the placement in time was amazing. They were very 80s. 
and then they were very 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you had... Sh- you had not not shoulder pads. I must said shoulder pads, but the thing that that really stands out that makes it look that way um, is Ben in that black turtleneck mm-hmm. with that slicked back hair. That's such nineteen eighties look, but particularly Faye and Julie. So Faye is played by Judith Light, and she had that hard front wig that looked very Maggie Thatcher. Not okay. So one thing really quick. Not a hard front wig, harsh hairline. Okay, yeah, yeah. Had a hard hairline. Yeah, but it looked Maggie Thatcher inspired. Yes. And I love well, and when this takes place, like they, that would make sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you compliment with her clothes, and then Julie, who was the former teen star, has this like, it looks kind of like an old pinup from like the forties or that, but it still has that like, glam seventies glam, to it. Kind of thing. Does that make any sense? A little bit. Basically, her hair was very like coiffed and large and styled. Yeah, it was billowy. But it wasn't that eight. Like it was, it wasn't the big eighties no, hair that we think of. No, it was contained big. Yeah, yeah. It it was like someone had took their beehive and just kind of let the twist out in the back, but left all the teasing. And I will say that made the age difference between the two clear but then when we move on to the 2000s you know you've got um uh julie in this ponytail who she's obviously ill she's got this ponytail but faye still has that she's kept that maggie thatcher hair now it's just faded you know, it's also thin and yeah. she's older. But and they're and they're more in their. I and almost I hate to say this. Faye looks like more in um, like um, Joan Rivers esque kind of clothing, like the silks and stuff with the patterns and the chunky jewelry. Uh-huh. Where Julie, of course, she's ill. She's more in like sweats and things like that. She's mm-hmm. not as glam as she used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that that you you had that dynamic you had that existing on the stage it really just oh my gosh it's guys you need to read the play you need to read the play because it emphasizes everything in the play so much more you just see that fall from grace and you see everything else that just oh I know this is not the way we should be doing the podcast like not have everybody in on it but it's just that mm, good um and then yeah, you just then you have the other male characters of like Ben and Scott, and then later on Timmy. I mean Tim, Tim looks like your typical late '90s, early 2000s kind of kid, college kid with his cargo pants and his jacket. You know, he doesn't have the long crazy hair, but you know, he does look a little squirrely. And if memory serves me right, he is a little squirrely. Well, he's a little on drugs. Um, and Ben looks like your do-good young Jewish boy, clean-cut lawyer. Um, and then Scott, good old Scott, you know, he just, he looks like a college kid with his sweaters and everything. He's just, when and his sideburns in the 80s, he just, you never suspect anything is a thing. That's why that was such a bombshell. He looked healthy, but hey, that's good writing, right? Um, so I thought one of the things that I really appreciated was that the, the color palette, I see, I'm back to palettes again, was so fantastic in communicating mood and and whatnot. Because, like, in, in the 80s, 
it was like beige focused browns and yellows but and which 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 helped honestly when you get that much of that color on stage it does add a little bit lightning like it light it lightens the stage mm-hmm. where in the 2000s there was a lot more gray and blacks and it was a lot more depressing obviously at that time in the story mm-hmm. so i love that that was reflected you know it was more stormy yeah which i loved um why don't we go into lights want to go into lights please shall i shine a light on things um, I love that the lighting was soft, warm yellow lighting. And that really helped create that grainy home movie feel. Mm-hmm. What do you call it? Sepia tone? Yeah. Um, mainly in Act 1 when we're in the 80s. That's where mainly we see that effect. That, that warm, warm yellow light giving us that feeling. And then there's a rush of grays and whites when we're in Act 2 and we're in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and more coming from the windows, especially. So there's the apartment itself is it's a lot darker. Exactly. We, you know, there's more lighting fixtures in the '80s, but then the '90s we're using the windows a lot more, and there's more shadows. And of course, like I said, it's a darker, sadder time. So that lighting design choice made a lot of sense. Um, it the palette blended well with all the others, you know, with the costume design and the set design. So. For the most part, it was warm and inviting throughout the show. The only time we got the sense that it was cold was obviously when Julie was alone and dying. Mm-hmm. You know that. What a what a brilliant ability to communicate that. Just visually, no words, just to give you that aura, that sense, that feeling, which I think leads us to our final category in this, which is direction. Yeah. You know, um, I thought the direction was outstanding. I mean, it's always good at... Manhattan Theater Club? Mm-hmm. Everything's great at Manhattan Theater Club. Subscribe now. <laughs> um, no, but I, I thought the pacing and the flow was amazing. I thought the rise and fall from each discovery and the secrets that were revealed felt natural and perfect. You know, they they've... Obviously, this was rehearsed and everything, but it felt like natural. Like we were discovering things, you know. Oh, Scott's got AIDS. Oh, there's no money. Oh, stolen jewelry. You know, all of this just it. Every time it was, it was something rediscovered. The pace at which conflict occurred was also flawless. We didn't get well. We got bombarded one after the other, but it was spaced out so that we weren't overwhelmed. Just when we thought we were getting over one thing, the next thing hit. And then the next thing hit. Um, so to me, the show is actively breathing, allowing us to really get a sense of space throughout. Whether that be a lack of space in the beginning with so many people. There's so many people in Act One, right? And they're all like crammed in this apartment. Or if it's being, or if there's an overbearing presence of a space, like it was in Act Two at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. There's that huge dining room table, but there's only the two of them. And then the three when Faye joins, because Tim won't stay around. Yeah. You know, and it's so empty, and it's so cold, and it's so dark. And I mean, you really, they didn't have to say anything, and we got the gist of it. And that, that's amazing. And if you also notice the movement, the speed of movement slowed down. The distance between people was more in Act Two. Mm -hmm. It just, everything was slower, sadder, colder. Lesser. Yeah. And that was the brilliance of the direction. So I just 
snaps all around. The show has had several notable performers, including Jessica Hecht, Judith Light, Jeremy Shamos, and Mark Bloom. So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. I think, honestly, the only theatrical impact I could come up with, as great as a show as this is, is just, it's another great work by Richard Greenberg. You know, I, I don't think this told some revelation story, change the world, mm-hmm. you know, join a cause. I just think this was such a brilliant written play a great work written by Richard Richard Greenberg so I think that's the biggest impact it had he contributed that to the tomes of theater yeah Yeah. I'm inclined to agree with you so shall we go into societal impact yeah I mean as far as societal impact um, you know I think that this was very targeted on who they wanted who their audience was and I think it was mostly New Yorkers yes yeah. Um, and I think that's why I had a hard time remembering this show, was because at the time, I had only ever visited New York a couple of times. Well, this and, is your fourth time out there. Yeah, but, you know, that's visiting, that's not living there. And this show, to me, felt like New Yorker problems, the New Yorker stuff, stuff I just couldn't associate yeah. or relate to. It might be different if I see it, if I saw it. No. That's fair. I, I see, I thought it told, the side impact is it told a thoughtful and heartbreaking story of a neighborhood and kind of people that is stereotyped and speculated about. But in this work, they're humanized and relatable. You know, a lot is, Upper West Side people, uh, it's assumed a lot about those people. They're rich. They're stuck up. They're they this. problems. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this show was like, okay, yeah, they're rich. But, wait, there's more. You know, they they can be just like anybody else with problems. They're not like some. Most people aren't like everybody. You know, I'm not saying that they're like every Tom, Dick, and Harry. And that they have the exact same problems. But like everybody else, they do have their problems. They do have their struggles. And I was like, okay. Um, I also think the other societal impact was that it was a wildly successful show for MTC, and it exposed audiences to the playwright Richard Greenberg. Now, he had written several other Broadway shows, but at, you know, 2013, hey, if you haven't seen a play by Richard Greenberg, there's a great one right here. And then you go down the rabbit hole and you can read other of his works, including most recently, Take Me Out. Uh, He wrote, now that was a revival, so he wrote that before this, but, you know, I remember seeing Take Me Out and I was like, wait a minute, this this tone sounds familiar. Like, who's the playwright? And I looked and I went, oh my gosh, it's Richard Greenberg. Oh, no wonder why I like this show. I love his work, you know? Mm -hmm. So... Let's ask the question, is this show relevant? Um, I love the show and the message that it carries as well as the feelings it makes you feel. So I would love for the show to be done again. Uh, as to if it's relevant, that's a hard one for me. I think it could be revived and be in the conversation, but also... As far as a play goes, there's many better and newer works by other playwrights whose voices deserve a chance to be heard. So this is a hard one for me. And for the first time, I think I'll say maybe for Broadway. It's, I could go either way. 
But for sure, yes, for regional and collegiate theaters. But I'd like to see it be done again, but it, I could go either way. As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show once back in 2013. And I'll speak for myself, I absolutely love the show. I think I've already made that clear. Yeah, I mean, I I don't remember a whole lot about this show. And that's unfortunate because I know you've always loved it and I, I try to think back like, why this one, of all the ones, didn't quite stick in my head. Well, it was our first show at MTC in the Friedman Theater, so that's another memory. This is the first time yeah. you attended the Friedman Theater, I, I rem- the big seats in the back. Yeah, I remember seeing Judith Light, and I remember thinking how brilliant she was. That's the second time you saw Judith Light, because you had seen her previously in other desert cities. Uh-huh, and I just, I, I just feel bad that I cannot remember the story. It did not Sounds like you need to read the me. play. I remember meeting the cast afterwards, especially Jessica Hecht and Judith Light, who actually came out together, and they were so nice, and they were in sun hats. Oh, yes, the fancy sun hats. I do remember that. See? Um, They were so nice, and they signed uh, playbills. It was wonderful. And then I remember the next day buying this play at the Drama Bookshop. That was the first time we went to the uh, Drama Bookshop. Yep. And I was like, got to... And it was there. It's like current shows on Broadway, and I bought it. So um, it was brilliant. Yeah. Theater is back, and we hope you can join us at a show soon. You'll be able to catch the assembled parties at a theater near you sometime soon, question mark? We also want to remind you that you, you out there, can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, Milton Arias, Kevin McLeod, Glad Rags, and Billy Murray.